Hey, welcome to Every Night's a School Night. And this is going to be that promised summer episode. And not promised as in promised land, but promised because I said I'd do it. And I did one last year. During this very same month last year, I barely got it in. I barely got last year's episode in before the end of July, but this time we got plenty of room. We got a lot of breathing room before July is over. But this is going to be similar to that one in that it's going to be non-traditional as far as every night's a school night goes. There's not going to be any doo-wop, any country, nothing from the 1950s and 60s. In fact, this is going to be a very international show. It's going to have uh, relatively little from America. And it's going to span several other decades in the 1950s and 60s. But it's still got the same spirit. It's still weasel-free. We're still running a weasel-free environment here. You know, because a lot of weasels have been revealed over the last few months. They were always there. We always kind of knew. But a lot of weasels have been revealed, sort of like in The Wizard of Oz, when the curtain comes down. Oh, it's a man. It was a man all along, not just a giant head. Uh, well, it's the same thing recently, but instead of a curtain coming down and there being some conductor behind the wizard, instead it's just somebody lifted up a skirt and there's a weasel hanging around someone's ankles. That's what a lot of people are like right now. But I don't hate them. I can't hate somebody for being a weasel. It's in their nature. And, you know, I don't even mind rodents. I, th I think it's okay to have rodents around now and again, as long as they're not, you know, running around your house, as long as they haven't taken over. You know, I think it's nice. Rodents can be cute. Rodents can be cute. You heard it here. But yeah, this is one of those non-traditional episodes, but because I'm doing it for a second year in a row, it's somehow become a tradition. So it's a traditional, non-traditional episode. That non-traditional, traditional, weasel-free episode. And, uh, and you know, we're going to make sure to get the attitude right. Our world needs that. You know, it's not my job. I don't have that much power. I'm just a man. I'm drinking a, a mystic mango kombucha right now. And I want to embody that. I want to embody that mystic mango energy here. I want to put the mystic man into mystic mango. Mystic man go. That's the only prompt I need. That's the only encouragement I need. I'm running that race and somebody holding a sign that says, Mystic Man, go. But yeah, we're going to get into it here and uh, you can expect... Uh, you can expect for there to be a purity today in what we have to express here. A purity that I feel like is missing from just about every conversation and not that I have the exclusive rights to this purity... But uh, there is a big, there's a silhouette of something missing in our world today. And this is how I start all my motivational speeches. There's a missing, sil there's a silhouette of something missing in our world today. It's true, though, and people f uh, feel it, and therefore they try to fill it. And I'm not going to try to fill it for anybody else. 
I don't I can't guarantee that this episode's going to fill anything except a little bit of time. But it's a celebration of summer. It's a solar celebration. You should embrace the sun. If you don't like the sun, it's cuz you either you're fat and it makes you sweat. You you forgot your sunscreen. You have some bullshit reason for disliking the sun cuz you should worship the sun. I think that's what these little summer episodes are. They're a form of solar devotion. Cuz there is something special about the summer. Because it's the solar season.
Yeah, that was Fate's Warning with Night on Brocken, which is the title track from the album Night on Brocken, which is their first album, a little more trebly, which I like, than uh, the other albums. But, uh, I mean, I love Fate's Warning. It's really become one of my favorite bands over the last, I don't know, five, six years. Just one of those things that crept up on me, and then it was just, that was it. That was it. Uh, I think truly some of the best songwriting, one of the most unique sounds of that era. And I love the band name Fate's Warning. And that song in particular was a great pagan hymn. Some great pagan lyrics there. And uh, yeah, Fate's Warning. I was introduced to them from the movie River's Edge, actually. It has that great track, Kyrie Ellison, however you say that, from their second album, which is that booming riff that that opens with. And there's that scene in River's Edge where that riff, I think it's while they're riding bikes or something, and it's playing that riff. And I remember just thinking, who is this? I was peripherally aware of Fate's Warning. I had heard the name, but I was much younger when I saw River's Edge, so I didn't really know. I hadn't really retraced the steps back to that era of heavy metal. And that's, of course, a great soundtrack. And there's a part of me that feels a little uh, self-conscious of being introduced to a band from a soundtrack. Like the Gummo soundtrack was sort of the later equivalent of the River's Edge soundtrack, where there are very few soundtracks that had great raw heavy metal or just any form of metal on them. And the Gummo soundtrack introduced me to Bethlehem, which again, I'm self-conscious of, but I was also like 15 years old, so what am I self-conscious of? And I'm a fan of River's Edge, I'm a fan of Gummo. I guess there's this part of me that feels like I should have found it more organically, but that seems kind of organic too, to find something that way. Just some neurosis here for you, and not the band. Just uh, my own personal neurosis, neuroses, when it comes to art and music, which seem to be the source of goddamn so much of my neurosis and <laughs> neuroses, which is kind of why I've had to shut them out of my life bit by bit and not get rid of them completely because they are so important to me, uh, both me, my foundations, and who I am moving forward. It'll always be, art and music will always be crucial to who I am, but I've also recognized, you know, the more I've untwisted myself, the more I've realized that those things, you know, they really manage to get in your cracks and fester in weird ways. And maybe that's just me, but I see it in all art and all music subculture. I see, I see the same thing happening to other people. So it isn't just me. But anyway, let's just focus on, let's, let's get away from my own bullshit and just talk about, you know, a band like Fate's Warning. I don't know, I've never, you know, a lot of those bands who were of that quality in that era, you can pinpoint bands that mimicked them or that sound quite a bit like them. And I think somebody who's not a, a, a big fan of 80s heavy metal might be like, well, it sounds like it all. It's got twin guitars and, you know, wailing vocals, but maybe I just haven't dug in enough. Maybe I don't need to. I've just never found another Fate's Warning. 
and I never feel I never feel that I made the wrong choice when I put on Fate's Warning. I mean, there's things I love, and I put them on, and I think, oh, I made I don't want to listen to this. This isn't what I was looking for. Every time I listen to any of those, especially those first three Fate's Warning albums, I just feel instantly better. I feel like doing something with myself. But uh, we're going to continue on here. And Fate's Warning was an American band. They are an American band. And we're going to continue on. Even though I said this is an international episode, we're going to play an international array of artists. Not on purpose. It just worked out that way. But Fate's Warning, an American band. We're going to play another one. This is Ashbury. Ashbury? Ashbury? But uh, Ashbury's a band. This is from 1983. Kind of in a hard rock. I mean, I'd say they have everything about them appeals to me as a metal fan. They do a lot of acoustic stuff. They're they're a little bit softer in certain ways. I don't I don't really know how to put it, but I would say they're more of a hard rock band if anything, but they're varied. They're you know, they if you see their album cover, it's very fantasy. So they're in that realm and it doesn't even really matter what you call things, you know, it really doesn't. It either fits into a certain realm, it either fit, fits in a certain headspace or it doesn't. And this is a song that I I listened to just on repeat years back. Before I'd go out, before I'd go out to bars when I still drank, I would listen to this song just on repeat. It felt like a personal hymn. And I didn't own a copy, and then a couple years ago, a year or two ago, a good friend of mine who runs a a distro, he distributes records, he got a copy of it, and I was very happy that I was able to get a hard copy of it. And uh, this song is by Ashbury, and it's called Madman. Just an anthem, an anthem to me. And uh, we're going to follow that up with a a second song by Ashbury. And this is interesting because Madman is from 1983, a very organic, good song. And End of All Time, the second song I'm going to play, is actually, it was released 2018. So an almost 40-year difference. They're one of those bands that was active at a certain point in time, and then they split up, and then they reformed way later, probably when they realized there was this whole new fan base who was eager for cult retro music. And that's usually a bad decision. Usually I'm opposed to bands who do good music early on, don't really get the kind of respect maybe they felt they deserved, and they break up. I don't know why Ashbury broke up, or if they even did, but became dormant. And then decades later, they come back. And I actually like what they did when they came back. It's not exactly the same. It doesn't quite have the same sound to it. But I still think it's good. I still think it's charming. And this song in particular that's going to follow Madman, it's called End of All Time. And it's about what I talk about on this show all the time, which is the parallel apocalypse prophecies that so many cultures have, that so many belief systems have. And it's a little bit on the you know negative side. It's it's doomy. It sees this impending doom coming. But I like that they understand that this is something that parallels all people. And just the, the fact that there is such a common human vision through all time of this impending apocalypse, Ragnarok, 
the tail end of the Kali Yuga, however it is you want to describe it, just, just about everybody has their version. Climate change, which is the least interesting version. Not that I'm a climate change denier, I just choose to call it Ragnarok. I just choose to call it the end of the Kali Yuga. Let's make it a little more interesting if we're going to obsess over it, all right? Let's get ancient. Let's get eternal. And I'm appreciative of groups like Ashbury because I feel what they communicate is something eternal. Whether it's simply being a madman or whether they're talking about the end of all time. Certainly in the 1960s when this was attempted, everything, everybody got very agitated and then uh, it was frozen out. In, in so-called primitive or pre-literate societies, there is the office of the shaman. And the, the shaman is deputized to act for all of us in the same way that we have airplane mechanics to fix jet engines. We have shamans to explore these hidden and fairly terrifying other dimensions. The people who self-select themselves into a group like this in a society like that would be the candidates for this kind of shamanic voyaging. Years in hell. So, man, man, run 
Yeah, much more modern production with that second one. And I never would have played that song if I hadn't played Madman first. But I did kind of like the idea of bookending that little Ashbury bit with an early song, 1983, with a 2018 song, especially a 2018 song about the end times. There's something that just, I just like the idea of that, of a band waiting 30 almost 40 years to do a song about the end times. And yeah, I probably never would have played it if not for the obvious showcase of that first song, showcasing Madman, which has great lyrics, a great theme. Uh, In fact, that lyric, tie down the harness, has personal significance to me because if you've had any email correspondence with me for the last 20 years, you'll uh, you'll know why that's significant. The Harness. That song's about my email address. Oh, my God. The prophets. The prophets. They knew, they knew what my email address was going to be in 1983 before I was even born. Which reminds me, I was talking to my buddy the other night, and around 2011, we used to go to this dive bar. And it was a, real, it was a, it was a bar that wanted to be a dive bar, and it managed to cross that threshold and become a real dive bar. Because there's a lot of bars that want to be dive bars, but they're not successful. It's like they they don't clean very well, and they hang certain decor because they want you to think this is a dive bar. But they never really succeed. But this bar in particular that I'm talking about, it did manage to go from... They faked it until they made it. It's a great example of a dive bar faking it till they make it, because they crossed that threshold... But there was an older guy there, he was probably in his mid-50s at the time, and his name was Mumbly Joe, and we didn't give him that name. Somebody else there, the bar gave him that name. (laughs) The the actual bar probably gave him that name, but he lived up to his name of Mumbly Joe, and we used to talk to him now and again. I don't think he had any idea that he'd talked to us more than once. I don't think there was any recognition. This guy, you know, he wasn't homeless, but he was, you know, pretty much as close as you can get. He's missing teeth. And he was telling us how he was illiterate and how he was he was taking he was going to be signing up to take classes at the local community college to learn how to read. And they asked him for his email address. And as he told us, he was like, email address. I I, I don't even know my email address. And I'm not doing a very good mumbly Joe impression, but he was like, I, I don't even how do I find out? How am I supposed to know what my email address is? And from this conversation, it became clear that he thought an email address was like your street address, where it's just something fixed that you you just have. It's like the government assigns it to you at birth. It's like the government assigns you your email address. You know, with an email address, yeah, you go to a certain website, an email provider, and you type in what you want it to be. You know, in my case, the 20 years ago, the harness, and you type it in, and it's yours. But you don't do that with your street address. You know, it, when you move into a new place, it's not like you go online and you're like, hmm, what do I want my, what do I want my address to be? Hmm, one, two, three, uh, School Night Avenue. You know, it's not like you get to do that. Um, but in this guy's mind, you know, your email address was just assigned to you in the same way that your street address would be. And that blew my mind because this guy had clearly missed the digital revolution. I mean, he couldn't even read. He was illiterate, as he told us, and he was trying just to learn how to read at the community college. So he would have no idea how you get an email address. And, of course, schools issue them. Businesses, you know, companies will issue to 
issue them to you if, if you're an employee. But it was just amazing seeing this guy's perspective where this guy Rip Van Winkled his way through you know, the 90s and early 2000s, and then all of a sudden he needed an email address in 2011, and he just assumed that it was assigned to you in the same way your street address would be, but pretty amazing. Um, but uh, yeah, the, you know, the Ashbury madman, we're going to continue on that theme, the madman theme, the judge and the jury, oh, now they wished you well. Some great lyrics to that. Uh, we're going to continue, though, on the Madman theme, and we're going to play a song that I feel like I've played before, and I may have. I may have played it in the last summer non-traditional traditional episode, and I just forgot. Uh, although I think I'm confusing it, because I, I played a few songs on the last summer episode by a band called Serpent's Night, who was also from Seattle. This band that I'm about to play was from Seattle as well, and... Uh, one of the songs I played last year was Serpent's Night, No Sanctuary. And this is by a band called Sanctuary. So I may be confusing that, or I might have played this song like eons ago, way back in the early days of Every Night's a School Night, where I would just get drunk sometimes and play a non-doo-wop, non-country song and forget all about it the next day. Uh, breaking the rules and just forgetting about it. Um, but... You know, while last year I played Serpent's Night, No Sanctuary, which was a Seattle band, I'm going to play the Seattle band Sanctuary, who are more well-known because they became a much more famous band under another name, at least certain members did. And this is from their 1986 demo, and the song is called Insane. So Sanctuary Insane. And I, I feel like it captures it. I feel like the high-pitched vocals, I mean, that's what I love about falsetto vocals. That's what I love about generally higher register vocals, especially in that 80s heavy metal style, is they really do sound insane. And it's insane that that was considered normal. It's insane that some of those bands became popular during their time. I think it's even more insane than, you know, raspy screams or growls. In some ways, just sort of a... Just this high-pitched thing, to me, is actually more insane. So it's only fitting that the actual content of this song is insane, too.
degrees in Baghdad and the wind is out of the northeast at 15 miles an hour and we feel somehow better now because we're getting the information but what we have done is sold out direct experience and all institutions require this of us that we somehow redefine ourselves for the convenience of the institution and this redefinition always involves a narrowing a denial so that you know if you want to be in marxist society if you want to function in marxist society you have to define yourself as a marxist human being well it turns out in a marxist society there are no homosexuals because that just happens in decadent societies so then you know if you happen to notice any tendency like this in yourself you have to deny its existence because it just does this just doesn't happen in a marxist society and similarly every society has this in our society if you hear voices we have mental hospitals for you uh if you if you have vast visions of the future uh you know we have drugs that can help you and uh, make this go away it's fun to flirt around with madness and insanity you know i've certainly spent portions of my life uh, skirting around that edge skating around that edge having both my feet in one roller skate just going around the edge of that abyss shifting my body weight to and fro just to see what happens but anytime you come out on the other side of that, anytime you get out of that alive, you end up tougher and wiser. You know, as long as you don't fall in completely, or if you fall in, you manage to find a way to get out, you're going to be tougher and wiser. Not to say that you are absolutely tough or absolutely wise. Not that you even want to brag about those things. Because the second you brag about being tough, the second you brag about being wise, well, guess what you're less of? Guess what you lose? Some toughness and some wisdom the second that you decide to broadcast that. But I do think if you push and pull your mind a little bit, if you test the limits of your mind, it is going to make you tougher and wiser. But uh, that should be with the goal of living a triumphant life. And that doesn't mean triumphing over other people. It doesn't mean being better than anybody. It just means living a life that when you lay down to die, you can say, yeah, that was a good one. That was a good one. I did, I did what I could, you know, and I may not have done everything, 
but I did what I could, and I can let go of this life without any regrets. Because that's the cliche, is no regrets. But I would say a better way of spinning that would, would be, was it a triumphant life? Did I more or less do the things that I not only wanted to do, but felt were right? And if I spent a period of time doing what maybe wasn't right, did I correct my path? That, to me, is a triumphant life. And I do want to get on a triumphant kick here. I think it's important to have some kind of empowerment. It's fun to listen to songs about going insane. It's fun to listen to songs about going insane. But it's even better to listen to songs about slaying dragons. And that's what I'm going to bring to the table here. And it's funny, I said this was going to be an international episode, and so far, 50 minutes in, all I've played are American bands. <laughs> Every single band I've played so far, I believe, is American. But that's going to change right now, and that's going to be with Renegade. And this is a German band. And this is going to be a couple songs from their 1986 album. I keep this CD in my car all the time. It's, it empowers me. It's good driving music. It empowers me. You know, it kicks off with this first song I'm going to play, Dragon Slayer, and then parentheses, Burn in Hell. So a song, you know, like this about slaying dragons is going to be a great one to drive to. But then some of the other songs on their album, they're, I would call them kind of party metal. And not what we would consider party metal today, like some sort of Andrew W.K. thing, but actually just kind of just feel-good metal, just kind of catchy. It's hard to even explain. It sounds like other stuff. I don't think it's completely unique, but it is good. It is empowering, and if it's good and empowering, well, I think that can help you slay the dragon. It definitely could in 1986 Germany, and I imagine that Renegade had you know, a whole line of dragon skulls to show off wherever it is they lived. Renegade, Dragon Slayer. But first we're going to open up with a little something to get us in the mood for triumph.
Yeah, Dragon Slayer Burn in Hell was followed up by Give Me Some Shocks. Give Me Some Shocks sounds like a reasonable request to me. Now we're going to stay in Europe here. We're not going back to America quite yet. I don't know if we're going to go back to America at all. We are. No, we are. I do have one more American tune ready, but we're saving the best for last. We're saving the the best country for last again. But anyway, give me some shocks. It's going to be followed up by a Swedish group here, Ultima Thule, with an American song. So we're not straying too far here. And it's going to be Ultima Thule covering Be My Baby. Originally by the Renettes, everybody knows this song. Everybody loves this song. Here's a version you may not have heard, but you know, following up that dragon slang, following up that request for shocks, give me them shocks, give me those shocks, give me some shocks, as it said. Not all the shocks, give me some shocks. The next reasonable request is simply, be my baby. Baby, now. 
Yeah, now that you're my baby, now that you're my baby, I lured you in with all that other music. I lured you in with that hard rock and heavy metal. And uh, I lured you in to make you think I was one way so that you would be my baby. And now I can reveal to you how I really am. I can show you my true passions because now you're mine. Now you're like a hostage. And my real passion is uh, electronic music. It's really not. I'm, I'm very ignorant of electronic music, despite having a background in experimental, you know, industrial noise type music. I'm very ignorant of techno and electronica. To me, it's, it, it's so just oversaturated. There's so much of it that's just kind of like taking other people's music and doing something else with it. It's just overwhelming. And there's, I, I've never found a real way to get in there because I feel like it would take effort or just happenstance that have hasn't yet happened. Happenstance that hasn't yet happened. But every once in a while, I do find a little vein. And uh, this is an artist, a Dutch artist, who's been active since at least the 90s, Lego Welt. Kind of like the toy. Maybe it is a reference to the toy. Because that's the other thing about electronic artists, is when it comes to their their names and their song titles and that kind of thing, it's very frivolous. And I don't mind that. But sometimes I feel like that frivolity, is that how you say that? Frivolousness. Sometimes I feel like that's also reflected in their entire approach, and it kind of puts me off. I know that's just how it is with some of these artists, but still... Lego Welt. I prefer to say Lego Welt. Uh, Dutch artist, and I'm going to play a block here. I'm going to play an electronic music block. Whoever knew that this would happen? But there's really one style of electronic music I like, and it's when there's kind of a minimal rhythm with a very strong, simple, kind of European-inspired melody. I'm not much of a rhythm guy. You know, if I, had a, if I had a sign in my front yard, it would say, this is a melody household, not a rhythm household. Although, you know, I love how those two things work together. I love when a rhythm complements a melody very well, but I can listen to just a pure melody without any real rhythm underneath it. I can listen to a wild melody that just goes wherever it wants to go without a real rhythm, but I can't listen to a rhythm without a strong melody. Not to say there aren't exceptions or moments, but in general, it's difficult for me to do that. Just like it's difficult for me to really get my feet wet with electronic music. It would really have to be, it would take such dedication or just happenstance for me to discover electronic music, and that happenstance hasn't yet happened, except in select cases. And with this artist in particular, I'm a big fan, Lego Welt, uh, Dutch artist, and uh, I'm going to play a block here, and the first song is called Gina Fly to Space, not Gunna, Gina, G-I-N-A, like Short for Virginia, I guess. I don't know. Gina. I guess Gina is just a name unto itself. But Gina Fly to Space from 1998. And that's going to be followed up with the wonderfully titled Do You Really Care from 2002. And then the third song in this block is Dirty Love, which is from the same release as Do You Really Care. So both from 2002. Lego Welt Fly into Space, but not really Karen. Dirty love. 
centuries here and now. And if you have any doubts about it, just listen with me. Just be still and listen to whatever it is that's within earshot. And try if you can to just open up this thing beyond the obvious worldly sound.
Yeah, it's funny because electronic music too, and I don't know if that's electro clash. I really, I don't even, I'm not even playing around. I don't, I don't even know what to call anything. Uh, but it's just funny to me how electronic music is still thought of as this music of the future. Uh, maybe it's not. Maybe that's just in my head. I, I wouldn't even know what the music of the future is now. And I think there is, there's a, a legitimate point to be made that culture did halt once we got stuck in this nostalgia mill that is the internet, that is modern culture, which just seems to be digging into all of the things we missed out on in the past, as well as the things that we didn't miss out on, but nonetheless miss about the past. I'm sure people are doing new creative things, as they always do. I'm sure there's some Tuvan throat singer out there who's innovating on that. We gotta go back to basics. We gotta go back to basics. You gotta listen to this Tuvan throat singer. So much better than all that electronic music. It's been doing the same things for the last... 30 years? I don't know. Those songs I just played are 20 years old. One of them was over 20 couple of them were 18 years old. But I guess we also have to get away from that idea entirely, too, of trying to be deliberately innovative. Because I think the charm of that was lost at a certain point in time, of being deliberately innovative for the sake of it, for the novelty of it. But then using the same formulas that other people have already perfected or at least done a pretty damn good job at getting near perfect at. That doesn't seem to be cutting it either. So I don't know what. I don't, I, you know, of course, playing a block of electronic music turned into this philosophical conversation about music, which is one reason why I don't even like most electronic music, is a lot of it does seem to be this philosophy surrounding, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I don't. I, I, I'm really out of my league there. But I'd like to go in a direction uh, that uh, is, is a little bit weird, a little bit haunting. And this is a an EP that was brought to my attention by my friend Miles. And despite being someone who used to be heavily into noise, industrial, experimental music, I missed out on this band Grimm. Who were kind of? I guess they might have been going for an, you know, an early Japanese variation on Throbbing Gristle. I'm not sure exactly. I haven't really done proper investigation, but they did this strange folky EP, and it's got a couple very haunting songs. It almost veers into that sort of uh, like creepy child territory, which I can't stand. It's like baby doll art creepy baby doll art. I think it's okay to do that if you're a woman. I actually have a couple friends, a couple women who are friends of mine who do occasionally dabble in that creepy baby doll art. And I think because they are women and they have the capacity to give birth, I think it's okay that they do that. But if you're a man and you're veering into this like doll art or this creepy baby doll, like haunting children playing with reverb on it, and, uh, oh, it's a baby doll head that you painted on. If you're a man doing that, there are some big questions going on. And they're not very good questions <laughs> either. 
But I, I do give women a pass when they want to dabble in creepy baby or creepy little girl art. Because the creepy little girl thing, oh man. And how many movies, too? How many intros or not intros, um, trailers for movies have a little kid whispering something? I mean, it's just not my thing. But I, I do feel like women get a certain pass because they are mothers or they have the capacity to be mothers. So it just it makes some sort of pagan sense for women to want to explore that creatively. But for men, no. But, you know, Grimm here, I feel like it almost does sound like creepy child music, but it's not. It's just uh, beautifully haunting. This is some beautifully haunting music. It's from 1987. So we're bringing Asia into the mix here with this Japanese group, Grimm. And I think their name also kept me away from them. I think their name, Grimm... You know, because, you know, people who wanted to make fun of black metal, like, beat that joke to death by the time I was even into black metal. So use of the word grim was just sort of off limits to me. But who knew, you know, it would come full circle in the last couple years for this group called Grim from Japan to have this haunting, I don't even know what to call it. I guess it's kind of folky, it's kind of ethereal. Let's just call it that. But the first song, Heritage, I'm going to place two songs from this EP. The first song, Heritage, is the standout. And uh, it does something to me that I wouldn't even be able to put into words. And let's see if it does the same thing for you. Oh. 
kind of seven kinds of silence. I think I only know one. saying it had kind of that child creepy kid vibe going it might have just been japanese you know <laughs> i might have just been picking up on the japanese sound of it all uh, but good music very good music nonetheless and legitimately eerie maybe creepy creepy is one of those words that's lost all value to me it's either used as this pejorative against a certain type of guy he's creepy He's kind of creepy. He's a creep. It's either been it's either used that way, and rightfully, in most cases, there are creepy guys. But when you're describing art or music or something that has a certain effect, even a location, I feel like creepy has lost its value. I like eerie. Eerie, to me, still has its value. Uh, but, uh, yeah, you know... It's it, with that whole uh, 
creepy sort of music thing. I, I don't really like music that's meant to be deliberately creepy, but with those Grimm songs, despite the name Grimm, I feel like the thing that is sort of chilling or eerie about it is what's unintentional about it, not what's intentionally creepy, intentionally eerie. And maybe it was all intentional. I don't know. I, I'm just ignorant. You know, these days, really, that's all it comes down to. Even the things I know about, when I talk about them, I feel like, what do I really know about this? And I know that can be annoying to hear somebody say that. I don't even know about the things I know about, but it feels that way more and more. But I do know myself. I do know myself. And, you know, it might be a lonely time for people. I prefer the term lonesome. I like lonesome. Lonesome feels a little more deliberate, like you have a little more control, whereas lonely feels desperate. And maybe there's no distinction. Maybe they're completely synonymous. There's just something about the term lonesome opposed to lonely. And I think it is a lonely time for people, because on one hand, people are banding together in packs, angry packs, but people are also losing friends. They're, they're straying away from their families. At the very least, they're just isolated. Even if they have nothing else going, else, nothing else going on inside their heads that is separating them from people, we're entering more quarantine, guys. More quarantine. Right in the middle of summer. But I do recommend, you know, I've mentioned it before, but I recommend whatever you do, make sure it's sustainable. Develop a discipline. You know, develop a discipline around the way that you operate in the world right now. And it doesn't have to be a super tough discipline. I'm not talking about working out necessarily. I'm not talking about prayer. I'm not talking about looking up math problems online and, and learning how to complete them. I'm not talking about learning algebra, algebra. I'm uh, just talking about doing whatever you do in a way that you can sustain and that requires you to be sharp. And if you're lonely, well, you know, turn loneliness into a discipline. Make loneliness work for you. A lot of people have gone down a lonesome path and have had it work for them. It's actually connected them to the world even more. And that's how I feel. I didn't always used to like a lonesome path, you know, the lonesome path that I saw before me. But I have learned a way to connect with the world even further through that lonesome path. And it's not very lonely. It might remain lonesome, but it's not lonely. And we're going to be going uh, quite international here. We're going to be staying far away from this part of the world. And we're going to play a song by a guy named, uh, let's see here, Sammy Baksh. I was just, I'm struggling to pronounce the last name. B-A-K-S-H. And from Guyana. Guyanese. And the song is To Be Lonely. So I was hitting upon a, a theme here, and the song is To Be Lonely from 1976 by Sammy Baksh. Baksh? I'm not sure how to pronounce it. I'm not even sure how to pronounce Guyana. 
Am I saying that right? Guyana? Guyana. But Sammy Baksh. Baksh. <laughs> I, just, I just sound dumber and dumber the more I talk. Uh, but Sammy Baksh with To Be Lonely from 1976. For a sad and lonesome song, it sure is triumphant. It sure is powerful. And we're not even done. This isn't even going to close the episode out, but we're going to end up with the longest every night to school night ever. I think we're already there. An hour and 46 minutes. I think we're already there, but we might make it to two hours or more. But it's worth it because it's summer. We got the time. We got the daylight. We got that solar devotion, even if we're lonely. The scene in there where um, Bernard who is the guy who's out of it in the novel, because in his fetal fluid they got an alcohol contaminant. And so he's different from everybody else in this society, and he occasionally has original thoughts. And he and his uh, assigned girlfriend for the evening, or whatever she is, are in a helicopter, and they sweep out past the crematoria where they're recollecting elements for reuse, And he suspends the helicopter over the Black Bay, uh, and and she immediately becomes very agitated, restless, anxious, and pleads with him to return to the city. And what it is, is it's her anxiety over being alone in the presence of nature. She literally can't take it. And I think there are a lot of people in our society, uh, and each of us in our own way at different times, who have within us this neurotic and infantile creature that can't face it alone, and that this uh, going it alone thing is very important. You know, Plotinus, the great Neoplatonic philosopher, he spoke of the mystical experience as the flight of the alone to the alone. It's a crime 
Uh, so we will be getting well over two hours here when all is said and done, which will uh, beat the previous record by a landslide, which I'm not even sure what the previous record is because it's not a competition. It's not a competition to make school nights longer and longer. Although I do have to say, as night school has gotten to be about an hour every episode, because my original intention was for night school to be almost exactly a half hour of me just talking about two topics and to come up with some kind of ridiculous sounding title, such and such and such and such and such. But over time, of course, night school has become pretty much the main show and those have gotten to be over an hour now themselves. So it's been sort of deliberate to make every night to school night a little extra special and make it about 80 minutes Although this one, uh, this summer special, traditional, non-traditional episode, it's going to be the longest ever, maybe. But hopefully it was enjoyable. Hopefully this was a fun episode. I feel like it's disjointed. I feel like it's all over the place. I feel like I haven't said what I really want to say. But when is that ever the case? When do I ever accomplish that? And that's okay. I can still live a, a life that is triumphant to me without ever saying what I truly meant to say. You just have to head in that direction. And for those wondering what the electronic, I don't know, you know, the, the, the sort of fun little medieval sort of interludes I've been playing are, I'm not going to tell you. They're from an old video game. And I'm just going to keep that jewel to myself, actually. <laughs> I had a a bit of a blow to my ego about a year ago. I'd been just, I'd immersed myself in old video game music. And, you know, I'm a poser, so like that included games that I never even played. Of course, it started with games I had played, but it branched out into me just digging into all these games I had never played just in search of great, pure video game music, because it does make me feel very pure. And all of the weird feelings I have toward music, subculture, subgenres, all of that baggage that I feel like goes along with that, it completely disappears when I listen to good, pure video game melodies. But I was telling a friend about it. I was just like, oh, yeah, I've been digging into video game music, this, this, and this. And he was like, oh, well, you know they're pressing that stuff onto vinyl now, and there's a bar in Portland that only plays video game music on vinyl. And I was just like, fuck. You know, it's not that I care. I don't care, but it was just one of those moments where I was like, oh, I thought I had this little jewel. And, of course, the nerds are into it. You know, of course, there's nerds who, to them, it's like... Yeah, what do you mean you're getting into video game music again? What do you mean you're rediscovering video game music? This is all I listen to. Uh, but just to find out that, you know, they're pressing video game soundtracks on vinyl, and there's a Portland bar, of course, that plays DJ sets of this stuff. It was just, it was perfect, though. My ego needs that. My ego needs that needle jabbing into it now and again. Because I was kind of feeling high and mighty. I was kind of feeling like, ooh, I've got all these great melodies to myself. I've got all these great melodies to myself. And then to hear that there's some sort of trend in that direction, I needed it. My ego needs to get a little jab now and again. 
but I also, you know, sometimes I keep jewels to myself. Sometimes I still keep jewels to myself because I still have this ego, you know? I can't, I truly can't say it's gone as this, ep- as this show is a testament to. This ego ain't gone. If I ever retire every night to school night and night school, I'm just going to do a show called This Ego Ain't Gone because it's not. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, yeah, hopefully people have enjoyed this extra-long summer non-traditional, traditional, traditional, non-traditional. You say non-traditional, traditional. I say traditional, non-traditional. At the end of the day, we mean the same thing. So let's come together. Let's take this horseshoe and bend it so far that uh, those separated ends touch. Let's bring them together. And what better way to do that than with magic? And we're going to go back to America to close this out. We're going to go back to my home soil. Both physically and psychologically and spiritually, America is my home soil, at least for this lifetime. For the body that my spirit inhabits, America is my home, as you know, because you heard the 4th of July episode, and I say it all the time. But uh, we're going to close out with somebody who's very famous, very famous, and his name is Barack Manilobama. You may know him as Barry Manilow. I know him as Barack Manilobama. And we're going to go back to an early album of his, 1973, and this song is Could It Be Magic? And it's a song most people have probably heard, but this is the first album version, and it may be a little bit different than the version that you've heard. It's a special one. I feel like it's a true song about magic, as the title suggests, you know, and it's a love song, it's this and that. But I, I really feel that Barack Manil Obama here tapped into that very real magic that we sense. Sometimes we harness, sometimes we just want to believe it's there, but I do believe it's there. And any opportunity where the question can be asked, could it be magic? I'd answer yes.
land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free So take my hand And walk this land with me And walk this lovely land with me Though I am just a man When you are by my side With the help of God I know I can be strong So take my hand And walk this land with me And walk this golden land with me Though I am just a man When you are by my side With the help of God I know I can be strong land our home If I must fight I'll fight to make this land our own Until I die This land is mine